Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Claudia, I really like your pop filter. Thank you so much. I, I feel like my neighbors probably think I'm like a Twitch streamer or something because my setup has been really important to me this entire pandemic. Would you, I'm trying to figure out if you'd be, if you're like more of a Minecraft person or a Fortnite person. And and now my knowledge of contemporary video games, something I used to be really into when I was a, a younger person, I have now exhausted. I did actually start playing Minecraft for the first time a few months ago. I have probably put 80 hours into it. I hate it. I hate every hour that I put into it and I couldn't stop. I think I had to end up just deleting it because it took over my life. It sounds like Twitter. I feel like Minecraft is pretty inoffensive. What did you hate about Minecraft? Okay. Well, I so I don't know if it's the version that I got, but I didn't get a tutorial ever. So I never knew what I was doing. And then I found out like, I don't know, 35 hours in that I was apparently playing on hard mode. And there's like an easier <laughs> mode. Where you don't die and also you can fly. Oh, you weren't on fly mode? Oh, that's sad. I thought like, the whole joy of it is that you fly around. Yeah, I was in survival mode and there's so much fall damage and it's fine. It's fine. I think, Claudia, I, it sounds like your Minecraft experience is just, it's a big metaphor for your life under COVID. Does that seem fair? That's that that's very dark, Alan. <laughs> At a certain point, if you dig into it too much. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security 2.0, a.k.a. Rational Security, no time to rationalize. I am one of your hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I'm here with my two usual co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. And we are joined today by a wonderful first-time guest, Lawfarer's brand new, maybe not brand new, but fairly new social media director, Claudia Swain. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yes. Hello. I am the digital media director, but I'm very happy to be digital here. Digital media director. I'm sorry. I feel terrible, but that includes social media. So I'm not totally off the uh, the target on that one. No, if you've noticed it. that uh, the Lawfare tweets seem much better recently, smarter, wittier, more frequent, sparkling, that is Claudia's doing. So somebody is going to get their work promoted much more heavily now. <laughs> I'm still learning all I'm the doing. Sex in the City references. I think this is the, the, <laughs> that is the key. The more pop culture references that we can work in has been our mission here at Ralph Security 2.0. And Claudia is continuing expanding on it dramatically in other domains. Claudia, I just want to thank you for for upping my Spetzel reputation. I think I think that's what my fans really want. It's just more Alan Rosenstein Spetzel content. So. They Appreciate come that. for the national security and they stay for the Spiezo. Ooh. Nice. Is that, was that nice. how it's pronounced? No one knows. No one knows how it's <laughs> I mean, I did speak, I did take German for like seven years, but it's been a while, so. Spiezel? Spiezel. Spiezel. Oh. That's funny. That's, that, that sounds like a half German, half Minnesota. Spiezel. 
We're going to get oh, yeah. so many mentions if that's wrong. So <laughs> I'll, I'll take the sword on that one. We've consistently gotten a number on the pronunciation and none of them seem to agree. So we'll see where we put. We'll let people fight it out on Twitter. If we say it a different way each time, we'll eventually make everyone mad. So that's good. Exactly. That is the Lawfare brand. Well, speaking about making everyone mad, we're excited to have you here today for the Come On Neil edition, a special tribute episode of Rouse Security 2.0 for our uh, most obnoxious Supreme Court justice, evidently, <laughs> uh, Mr. Justice Gorsuch, uh, who has decided to throw away the concerns of or the health of his colleagues in regard to his mask wearing policy. But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute, because that is just a small part of the three stories taken from national security news headlines that we will be discussing here today. Topic one, it's not the motion in the OSHA, it's the size of your popular mandate. Oh. <laughs> How long did it take you to come up with that one? I, I had that one before we picked the topic. I like that one a lot. That was why you wanted to do OSHA. Scott's been waiting for years, ever since he learned that there's this thing called OSHA back in law school. He's just been waiting for years to make this Now joke. I see why he campaigned so hard for us to talk about that one. Exactly. I have one of these for every obscure federal agency you can think of, so just wait for it. When you live in a world as acronymed as a State Department employee, this is what you do with them. But for this topic, the Supreme Court has invalidated the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA's, uh, vaccination mandate for major employers. What will the court's decision mean for the Biden administration's efforts to combat COVID-19? Topic two, we met on OK Stupid. The Justice Department has indicted leaders of the Oath Keepers movement for seditious conspiracy based in part on social media communications in which they actively recruited and planned for the violence of January 6th. What does the indictment tell us about the risk of domestic violent extremism? And talking about domestic violent extremism, topic number three, law and order DVE. Dun, dun. That thing is pretty good. I don't know if I got the tones quite right on that, but that's pretty good. As much as you could do verbally. The Justice Department's National Security Division just created a new unit committed to prosecuting domestic terrorism. What kind of lasting impact might this move have in preventing another January 6th? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it over to you for introductions. Last week, the Supreme Court, as I'm sure many of us are aware, issued uh, two high-profile decisions relating to vaccine mandates. So in uh, one of them over the dissent, the joint dissent, which is unusual, the joint dissent of uh, the three liberal justices, uh, the Supreme Court uh, stayed the OSHA vaccine mandate. Uh, so this is the mandate that was promulgated by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. I think that's the acronym that would require large employers to impose a vaccine mandate against COVID-19. And the Supreme Court uh, stayed that mandate, arguing that the statute that empowers OSHA to act only allows OSHA to deal with, quote unquote, occupational safety, and that for a variety of reasons, at least under the statute as Congress wrote it, the general vaccine mandate does not fall uh, under occupational safety. In uh, a decision issued the same day, however, uh, five to four, so Kavanaugh and uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Roberts siding with the liberals, the court actually uh, permitted the enforcement of a different vaccine mandate. So this is a vaccine mandate issued by the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, that would mandate any care facilities that receive federal funds that would mandate uh, those care facilities to require that their employees get a vaccine mandate. Uh, and here, the court uh, allowed that mandate, arguing that the rule uh, was not, quote, arbitrary and capricious, which is one of the standards we use in administrative law, and also that uh, HHS was permitted to 
skip the normal rulemaking process by which the agency has to go out and propose a rule and then get comments and then consider the comments. But HHS was just allowed to go straight to the rule because there was an emergency, because we're in the middle of a pandemic. And then there's uh, non-vaccine mandate related kind of Supreme Court COVID news that uh, Scott alluded to. In particular, there's a story, uh, I think, out today, Tuesday, when we're recording from uh, Nina Totenberg of NPR, arguing that there's some tension on the Supreme Court because apparently uh, Justice Gorsuch doesn't want to wear a mask to oral argument. Uh, and therefore, Justice Sotomayor, is, uh, who is immunocompromised, she has diabetes, and therefore is high risk for COVID, uh, is staying home. That doesn't sound great. Um, I, I am curious, you know, for more reporting and, and uh, you know, whether or not if Justice Gorsuch wore a mask, Justice Sotomayor would come into the building. And it, it, it's worth being cautious when you talk about the intra-Supreme Court dynamics between the justices. But, but you know, this, this does follow on a, a pattern of Justice Gorsuch not wearing a mask. And it's, the optics of that are at the very least interesting. Um, so with that long introduction out of the way, what, what do we make of these decisions, right? And I think we should just start with the kind of most obvious question was, what does this mean for public health efforts against COVID, right? What kind of effect will it have? In the grand battle against COVID, you know, should we expect this, these decisions, and in particular, the stay of the OSHA vaccine mandate, to have much of an effect at all? Well, before we jump in, I do think it's worth just clarifying one point. So unless I'm wrong, it's not technically a vaccine mandate. It's a vaccine or test mandate, Correct. which I, I do think is important because at oral argument, the judges actually repeatedly seem to conflate those things. But to me, that was one of the things that puzzled me about the ruling because there is not a vaccine requirement. There is, you get the vaccine or you're tested. I'm not quite sure what the testing regime is. I think it was, you get tested once a week and okay. you wear a mask. Correct. Which actually doesn't seem to be that invasive unless you're Justice Gorsuch perhaps, because, you know, the idea being if you have COVID, you don't want to infect your coworkers. I don't know if that changes how we think about about the ruling, but it did jump out at me during oral argument. I mean, Alan and Scott, you're you're both. You can talk about admin law. What do you think of this? Well, just just to respond to Quinta. So first of all, Quinta, you're absolutely right, and thank you for making that that point. And and it is it is easier. I mean, as I just did to to forget that it's it's not a vaccine mandate. It's a vaccine or test mandate. I think that should change the court's analysis of the gravity of the burden on individuals, right? Because if you don't want to get vaccinated, you don't. You get tested, and the tests aren't that big of a deal. And masks are annoying, but whatever, they're fine. You know, on the legal issue, I don't think it would necessarily make that much of a difference because, you know, as I read the opinion. And again, these are stays, and so the legal analysis is not quite fully developed. The controlling opinion is a procurium. So, you know, all that being said, the the issue is that you know OSHA's ambit applies to, under the majority's view, occupational safety hazards, and a generic kind of pandemic endemic disease is not a occupational hazard. Therefore, OSHA cannot mandate things whether it's a vaccine or something less intrusive like testing in a, in a mask. I, I think that's the theory. I'm just describing is there the opinion. Any good faith way to argue that that's correct? I mean, that just like it seems completely bananas to me. I will admit I am not familiar with OSHA or the the statute that was under interpretation here. But I, I think I, I saw a tweet from Lindsay Whalen who who writes and and uh, teaches about this stuff that you know you can fall off a ladder anywhere, but if you're in a construction zone, falling off a ladder is a workplace hazard, right? Like, how on earth can COVID not be a workplace hazard? Yeah, the dissent talks about that as well, and they list some examples. But I want to talk about. I mean, Alan has a right about about what the majority opinion is. Is like, oh, 
you know, it has to be a danger at work. It can't be a danger that is universal. They actually use the example at home, at schools, during sporting events, which I wanted to bring up because schools and sporting events are also workplaces. So it's nuts. It's just nuts. But I went in, I looked at the Code of Federal Regulations. This is 29 CFR Part 1910, the Occupational Safety and Health Standards. And I looked at like for general workplaces, so not maritime, not, you know, toxic work sites. It's exactly the thing that you're talking about, Quinta. It's like exit routes, emergency planning, like you have to have a fire extinguisher, ladders, trips, slips and falls. Like all of these things can happen anywhere, not just at work. Like it's it's a totally crazy way to write an opinion. Can I just say, Claudia, you have prepared so much more for this uh, segment than the rest of us have. Kudos. Kudos to you. Oh, Going just, to the CFR yeah. is like hardcore. I say this as someone who teaches administrative law. Well, see, no, I was a bureaucrat for a long time. So I was in, I think I was mostly in 39 with the train stuff, but I've also looked at satellites and everything. The train stuff. I like it. A good, a, an excellent title. I will say, I will say myself. What I was going to say is, you know, I, I think that there is a little more gray around where the exact line here, right? Can we see the court break down? And this is kind of like this emblematic of a category of case we're just going to see a lot more, which is that the new middle of the court is Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, right? We have a three justice kind of conservative arc that tends to agree on some of the particularly revisionist approaches to administrative law and the degree of deference given to the executive branch and how it interprets statutes around Justice Gorsuch, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas. Kavanaugh and Roberts seem to be in the middle. And then you have the three liberals, if you will, on the side saying, oh, look, the government, we're supposed to give fairly conventional deference to how the government interprets this stuff. And I do think that like this is a case where if you're reading the statute with the usual level of deference to which you would give to the executive branch, I'm not sure you would reach quite the same conclusion. Like they hang on the occupational element of it, um, which is fair. But I think a lot of the logic around that is a little tricky to say, well, what is occupational? It, I guess you could reach a kind of like, you know, step zero-ish type question to say, is this the type of thing that like actually this agency is invested with interpreting this aspect of the statute, right? Like if it's outside the scope of occupational. But I, I just have trouble saying, seeing like this being this idea that that's so outside the scope of what is a very, very broadly worded statute for something that clearly has a bearing on a workspace, as we're seeing take place in the Supreme Court itself in terms of people's ability to show up and do their jobs reliably. The thing that's really doing a lot of work here is this, I think, at least the major questions doctrine, which we see the concurrence by uh, Justice Gorsuch talk about a lot more, which is this a hedge kind of against the demise of the non-delegation doctrine, right? There's this idea that Congress can't delegate too much authority to the executive branch, but that hasn't really been the basis of a substantive ruling or wasn't really for many, many years through most of the 20th century. And now we see the modern Supreme Court and particularly uh, the Roberts Court over the last few years come back and say, well, we don't know exactly where the line is. You can give substantial deference to the agencies on a lot of issues. But when you get to major social questions that impact a lot of people, that's where we're going to demand more explicitness on the part of Congress, right? That's where you have to make clear you have the popular mandate to enact something into legislation, not just to win the White House and interpret a statute a slightly different way. And, you know, that is doing a lot of work here. What I think is interesting is that you did not see Kavanaugh and Roberts totally join that part of the opinion and talk about that sort of adopt such a strong view. And I wonder 
how this would have looked if this were a less general, more specific regulation, right? If they were saying, we are not going to say categorically every large employer do this, we're going to go through industry by industry and say, yeah, in fact, this industry, this industry, this industry needs to do this, have the standard, and here's why. And maybe even have an outlet saying, if you think your workplace doesn't warrant the standard, you can apply to get an exception to this policy. You know, my sense is that sort of mudding the waters and getting into more specific policy judgments was actually going to be harder for Kavanaugh and Roberts to get on board with. I don't think they categorically are as ready to say the executive branch can't do this sort of stuff as maybe the other three Republican appointed justices are. Um, I don't know exactly, but like that's my sense of a, of a way forward, like that they seem to be pointing towards is that do more specific regulations. And even then, it's not clear to me that they're saying categorically vaccines aren't something that OSHA could do. Um, I don't know if they quite get that far in the per curiam, but I maybe I'm reading that too optimistically. Alan, what are your reactions to that as somebody who's who's has to explain this case to your students in the coming weeks? Yeah, I, I I think the the major questions canon right this this idea that you 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 don't read statutes as authorizing major policy changes by administrative agencies without explicit authorization from Congress. I mean, it intuitively it it does intuitively make sense to me on a sort of conceptual basis, right? I I don't think it is by itself a crazy doctrine to hold. Now, there's a lot of debate over the policy consequences. There's a lot of debate over whether there's kind of any historical basis for it. It's a pretty direct outflow of the non-delegation doctrine. And there's this like huge fight among law professors right now over whether that has any basis in history or anything like that. You know, one thing I I will say, though, is that the, the problem with it is that it does inject the justices pretty directly into policymaking. Because what is a major question exactly? And and inevitably, a court that, and I think this is probably why the Chief Justice and Justice Kavanaugh, who has kind of similar institutional concerns that, that Roberts does, why only the three kind of quote unquote hardcore conservative justices really, really signed onto this. I, I do think what this does demonstrate to me is that whenever you, there are very, very, very few judges either on the left or on the right, who truly believe in judicial restraint. Um, You know, there are a couple in American history. I mean, I think the most famous and principled example of this is Felix Frankfurter, who believed in judicial restraint when that was useful for for progressives during the New Deal and then continued to believe in judicial restraint in the 50s when it was no longer useful to progressives and got a lot of flack for it. For more, I recommend um, Noah Feldman's excellent book, Scorpions. Um, which is a group biography of Frankfurter and some other justices, a really interesting book. But, you know, I, I, I do think that, look, I think it's totally fair to criticize Gorsuch for, you know, talking about, you know, the judicial restraint and the importance of textualism. And then the moment where that textualism leads to results he doesn't like, he just says, actually, this is a major question because I said so, and therefore Congress can't do this. You know, on the other hand, while you know, I get why Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer are talking constantly about the importance of a modest judicial role. Like they are also the minority on a six-three conservative court. And if this was a six-three liberal court, right? If Justice Ginsburg had retired earlier, if the Republicans had nom- had had uh, you know ha- had a hearing and not and confirmed Merrick Garland to the Supreme Court, right? You'd have the liberals talking about the importance of the Supreme Court in protecting rights. And so, my my only point is is that 
you know, to me, what's interesting about this question is its effect on the public health situation, uh, less so about kind of abstract considerations of what the proper role of the Supreme Court is, because I think that is just almost always downstream from your policy commitments and whether you are or are not in the majority or the minority, like very similar to how people think, I think, actually think about the filibuster in the Senate. Well, I wanted to follow up on that, Alan. So are you saying that it's not really worth it to debate the merits of the argument or, or the majority and just sort of admit that they started out where they wanted to go and they worked backward from there to just support their argument, but they they had a policy position that they wanted to take? It's, I'm not saying it's not worth debating it. I think it is worth debating it. I think, you know, I'm like, I'm a law professor, right? Like I'm paid to, to write law review articles that seven people will read about these kind of abstruse theoretical concepts. And I find it very interesting. I'm just saying that like very, very, very few judges, especially in a more polarized age where parties will nominate people who are committed to a particular policy and ideological vision of the law, possibly totally in a good faith way right? But they are kind of more ideological in that respect. I, I think that when anyone talks in the abstract about the proper judicial role, right, as if that has nothing to do with in this current political and judicial constellation, what procedural posture will lead to what substantive outcome, I, I wouldn't take that too too seriously, right? Now, look, I think that this is overall a wrongly decided decision and that Congress probably did want OSHA to be able to do this sort of thing. I, I think it's a closer call than uh, perhaps others others think. But but I don't think there's some, uh, for most of us, going to be some abstract right answer on the kind of major questions canon. Because you could easily imagine plenty of times where progressives would love it if uh, courts could invalidate the decisions of conservative uh, administrations because those conservative administrations are doing conservative things. Yeah. And I'm going to let Scott go in a second with whatever brilliant thing he has to say. But I did want to say really quickly, like, I do think that's a valuable perspective. And something that we should remember is that people like real people are going to be hurt by this decision. One of the things that I did during the pandemic was I worked retail and it's it's a bloodbath out there. Like, it's really, really hard. And it's going to be it's it's going to be bad, I think. Well, I mean, that makes me is part of the reason why I hope the Biden administration does not approach the decision to say that, well, we can't implement policies in this space under the statute, right? Because I actually think there's a weird tension in the major questions doctrine of how they frame what type of measure it is that affects things at such a large scale, right? Here they're saying, well, look, this measure would impact 85 million Americans with jobs, like two thirds of the American workforce, right? So that's the reason why this is so big. But that can't necessarily invalidate the statutory authority to do this writ large, right? Because of course, OSHA is gives the statutory authority to regulate occupational conditions for every employee out there. It does it just in terms of occupational conditions. So that would affect all of the American workforce in theory, right? Their objection seems to fundamentally be that it is one measure the executive branch is enacting without variation or specificity or specific tailoring that would impact everybody in kind of one foul swoop. And I just wonder whether you're going to get the same outcome if you have more tailored policies that really lean more heavily on executive branch evaluations of policy judgment, which is an area where, you know, these justices, even those that 
are not really judicial minimalists, which I think most of these justices at this point, um, still are hesitant to really weigh in with really specific evaluations of policy judgment. And so if you get the executive branch really pinning those down, saying, well, okay, any workplace where employees can't stay more than six feet away from each other, that's the one where we're going to have to fall under this or anyone in particular industries where that seems to most likely be the case. And again, maybe providing some outlets for exceptions or administrative process where people can challenge it. Frankly, just to drag out the timeline of a litigation appeal that could result in invalidation so that you can have this in place for the months that it matters, just maybe better policymaking at this point, given the reality of this court that the Biden administration is going to have to deal with. Well, yeah, the last thing I just wanted to say, you know, if I was understanding you correctly, Scott, in terms of getting more specific about like specific jobs and specific situations, I want to say that like maybe the justices just made a small mistake, but you know, like they're not supposed to in opinions like this. And when they got more specific, they said that lifeguards were not the kind of person who would need this regulation, which is like lifeguards put their whole mouth onto a stranger's mouth. I did think that was a particularly bad example. <laughs> like, what are they <laughs> Have they not seen enough Baywatch? The justices need to watch more Baywatch. Like, I just, if if you were like a guy in a bar and you made that example, I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, he didn't really think about it. But this is like a decision. Like, you know, you can't just put in lifeguard when like they're dealing with so many bodily fluids. Like, no, what are you talking about? I think they also specifically re- referenced lifeguards, linemen, meat packers, and medics, which is such a weird selection of four jobs. I get the alliteration they're going for, but I was like, what a weird specific set of four jobs that like seems to come out of like a 1950s vision of like what the American workforce looks like, as opposed to retail I can't believe it. and you know white collar, you know, computer programmers and things like that. Also, Claudia, while while technically they are not they are not just guys at the bar, they are still at a bar, the Supreme Judicial Bar. No. Boom. Budding. No. I had a kid nine months ago. I have finally entered in to my destiny as teller of dad form. jokes and awful puns. Here all lifetime, everyone. Oh man. <laughs> well, on that note. <laughs> yeah. Let's just move away from that as quickly as we we'll can. Move away from that as quickly <laughs> as we away. can. I stand by it. Well. Speaking of big jokes, uh, the Oath Keepers organization is in the news again today. <laughs> nice, that was good. Uh, I there thought that go. was pretty good. good. Yeah. I, I I could see I could see in Scott' eyes, you know, turning how to do that segue. That was very good. So the wheels turning in my brain. The Oath Keepers are in the news again in a big way. Uh, in that we have received what is I believe at this point are seventh, eighth, and ninth indictments of Oathkeeper members, but one in particular of the three that were issued to, as part of a wave last week is particularly notable, as it charges Oathkeeper's founder and leader, Stuart Rhodes, and a group of 10 other individuals who appear to be from the allegations in the indictment in the leadership group, at least for the purposes of the events of January 6th, for the Oath Keepers, with a number of charges on top of and different from what some of them had previously been charged with, along with other Oath Keepers, most notably seditious conspiracy, uh, a crime specifically alleging that they conspired and planned to interrupt the function of the uh, federal government. It's a big charge, one that carries a lot of rhetorical weight, uh, as well as some legal significance. And notably, it's not the only one. There's actually two other much more specific conspiracy charges are also being brought up on alongside seditious conspiracy. And because of that, it's making big waves. This is a step DOJ hasn't taken before, and a lot of people have been waiting for. And it seems really targeted at these people, this group that was specifically involved in planning and recruiting others for the events of January 6th, whereas other Oath Keepers who simply showed up and still marched on the Capitol, but weren't involved in those 
planning efforts, specifically weren't members of the signal channels that they used to do that coordination, are still being charged as part of a general conspiracy, but not a seditious conspiracy. Alan, I want to turn to you first as our former Justice Department person on here. What is it that we should be taking away from this indictment in terms of what it means for less maybe the DOJ side of it. I think that's interesting. But like, what does this tell us about what DOJ sees as the threats these groups pose factually? And do we think that's right? Um, You know, this is occurring against this backstop of a much broader conversation about are we in the United States leaning towards civil war or some spike in domestic violence? What do the facts that we see coming forward here Tell us about that, how seriously we should take those sorts of slippery slopes and how the Justice Department is conceiving of it and approaching it from a criminal law perspective. So let's put the civil war analogy to one side. I have feelings about the appropriateness or inappropriateness of that analogy and just focus on the the indictment here. I, I think what it tells us is that DOJ is, I think, fundamentally correctly calibrating how it thinks about the relative importance and danger of the different individuals and associates who attacked the Capitol on January 6th. So seditious conspiracy is a very serious charge. Part of that is because of the jail time. It has a 20-year statutory maximum, which is not you know huge compared to other crimes, but is not nothing. But it's particularly serious because of the kind of expressive effects, right? To call something sedition is to go beyond simply saying it's violence, it's crime, it's bad. It's to say it is an attack on the very nature of American democratic government and while it's not treason, because treason is a special crime that's defined in the Constitution, it's, you know, treason-like, light, light. it's treason-adjacent. It's in the same kind of category as, as these offenses. So one of the ways we make norms in our society is by the government expressing its views as to what conduct falls into what category. And DOJ is sending, I think, a strong signal in bringing the seditious conspiracy charge that it is willing to stand up in open court and talk about these individuals this group, this very high profile group that has a lot of, you know, at least some support in kind of right wing extremist circles and say they're not just conspirators. They're not just violent. They are seditious. They are attacking the nature of democratic government itself. Now, it's notable that DOJ has waited a year um, and has waited for hundreds of other indictments of individuals, some of whom committed relatively minor trespass offenses, some of whom committed quite serious violent crimes, you know, who attacked police officers, you know, leading to, to the death of one of them, that they've waited a year and through hundreds of those to get to this to this point. And I think what that also tells us is that DOJ is being very cautious about this particular charge, because the problem, and we can talk about this more later, the problem with the seditious conspiracy statute, it is just a statute kind of goes all the way back to the Civil War, is that as written, it's very, very broad. The seditious part of it applies not just to, you know, attacks on the government or, uh, you know, attempts to, to overthrow the government, but to um, use of force that impedes the execution of any law. And there are lots of laws. And so the problem with using seditious conspiracy is that on the one hand, you want to use it where it's appropriate. And I think this is kind of the textbook example of where seditious conspiracy is appropriate to use. But you don't want to set a precedent that any time someone breaks a law for some political purpose using force, you're going to call that sedition, right? And so the the kind of obvious counterexample here or the, the, the obvious kind of comparator for this case is Back in the fall of 2020, after the summer of uh, protests over uh, George Floyd and and police violence and Black Lives Matter, some of which became quite violent, obviously, and and led to some riots, the Justice Department 
obviously then under the Trump administration, sent a now kind of infamous memo to prosecutors in the field saying, hey, by the way, there's this thing called seditious conspiracy on the books, and you should really consider charging it because it doesn't require trying to overthrow the government. So if you get a, a, a protester that you know burned a cop car or tried to take over a courthouse or an FBI government building using force, use seditious conspiracy. And I think at the time there was correctly a lot of pushback, not because it's necessarily okay to attack government buildings, but because maybe we don't want to call even violent protest, violent acts relating to racial justice as sedition. So I think DOJ is trying to, to, to draw this line. And I think waiting until the Oath Keepers to bring seditious conspiracy is a really smart line to draw. I think that makes a lot of sense, especially because, you know, the, the sort of the line on the right and certain segments of the left about January 6th for a long time was well, they haven't charged anyone with anything other than, you know, assaulting a police officer, unlawfully parading, I think is is one of the charges that has been slapped on various people. No one's been charged with seditious conspiracy. And what do you know? That argument no longer quite works. I highly doubt that that will actually change the views of anyone. Um, you know, I think there's a room for a pretty clean pivot between nobody's been charged with seditious conspiracy and therefore January 6th wasn't important to how dare the government use seditious conspiracy charges. And this is a sign that we're all living under, you know, President Joe Biden's authoritarian. I, I'm curious, have you seen that in the right wing media ecosystem? I, I, I mean, maybe it exists, but I'm, I'm actually still waiting for like the big Fox News segment about about why seditious conspiracy is is a terrible crime. This, this seems to have shut some people up, at least for a little bit. Inter that's interesting. Well, give them time. I have not seen it on <laughs> yeah. Fox. I did see that Glenn Greenwald was making this argument. So, you know, make of that what you will. It does fit very nicely with Tucker Carlson's, you know, Patriot Purge argument that this is all just a a way to, you know, clap people in irons and so on and so forth. But for, for the reasons that you said, Alan, I do feel like, you know, if you're going to unveil a seditious conspiracy indictment that will provide the least reason for people connected to planet Earth to worry about government overreach, this would be it. It's <laughs> an important qualifier. <laughs> it is. Uh, if, but if you read the indictment, I mean, it seems the case seems pretty ironclad. And Scott, I know this is something that you were talking about when when we were working on putting together our, our lawfare summary of the indictment, which you can read on our website. We don't just summarize it. We yeah. analyze it too. We an for the I mean, don't worry, but if guys. You look, if you look at the indictment, the alleged facts sketch out what seems to be a quite obvious conspiracy that very much fits the definition of the statute. And there's just not a lot of wiggle room. And you don't need to look directly at the indictment either. Roger Parloff wrote a wonderful summary of what the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys allegedly did the day of January 6th, which is also on our website. Excellent. Excellent. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think the big takeaway from the indictment on this, and this is what we get at in our, our piece that went up at the end of last week, and I think we've seen echoed in, in most of the media assessments, is that this conspiracy, as it's envisioned in this indictment, does not reach Donald Trump, nor does it reach probably Roger Stone or members of Congress who may have been you know, involved with the Or planning. anyone who's not an Oath Keeper. Anyone, yeah, anyone who's not an Oath Keeper. And this model, I should say, of this type of conspiracy, you could see being applied to maybe leadership of the Proud Boys and leadership of some of these other people who are like actively involved in coordinating and recruiting people for violence. But it's not going to go much beyond that. So unless those people are somehow involved with that direct level of involvement, 
DOJ has not taken a stance that their activities actually fit within the scope of this conspiracy. That could change. They could come back and do a 10th indictment, right? And maybe they'll come up with a much broader vision, but they're not there yet. And that, to me, implies a fairly narrow conservative use of this statute, probably to preempt some of the you know arguments on the other side that everybody's always worried about, about feeding into this idea that this is a speech-based prosecutions or politically motivated. And I have to wonder, frankly, whether some of the advanced narrative around that may have been designed to provide an environment in which DOJ has an incentive to try and be more conservative in how they approach these things. I strongly suspect it was. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So what? So from what I understood from y'all's article is that probably the DOJ is using seditious conspiracy the way that they are because they really, really feel like they can prove it. And, you know, as you've said, that that's not going to cover Donald Trump, that may not cover Stone. And so do you feel like you would rather see them go maybe a little bit farther and and try and get those other people? Or are you guys happier that at least probably with the safer choices, they'll get the people they get? Yeah. I mean, so I'm, I'm curious what Quinta and Scott think. In this case, I would much rather them err very much on the side of caution. Seditious conspiracy is, you know, it's like dynamite, right? It, it can be very useful, but you can very easily blow yourself up. Uh, and the moment you start going after politicians for seditious conspiracy, I'm not saying that that's always out of bounds, right? I, there may very well, very well be cases where that's appropriate, but you got to be really careful. And what you don't want to do in that case is you, you don't want to, I think, make a case that you're not very, very confident that you're going to win. Because I think, you know, the worst thing that could happen for the rule of law, for perceptions of DOJ legitimacy, even for all of this stuff is for some like half-baked case to go up against Donald Trump and have to fight through this gauntlet of presidential immunity, First Amendment issues, just the elements of seditious conspiracy on a factual matter. He gets acquitted. There's like a whole thing. I don't think that helps anybody, right? I, I think accountability for Trump, such as it is, will come, if it does, through the political process. And that's really all we can hope for, frankly. And then what's important for seditious conspiracy, and this kind of gets us into the quote unquote civil war, is the fact that we need to recognize that Right now, right-wing domestic extremism, and we'll talk about that in the next segment too, is a huge threat to American democracy and has to be recognized as as such. Yeah, I I agree with Alan uh, on that front. Generally, I would say, you know, I I think it's it's a two-edged sword. DOJ needs to be very very straightforward and not be deterred by political factors for confronting clear illegal behavior. If Donald Trump was on a Slack thread with Oath Keepers 
coordinating to the march on the Capitol and arming, you know, quick response forces in Virginia to do that, then yes, he should be prosecuted, even if he was a former president. Absolutely. But there's no facts that show that level of involvement. And when you're talking about conduct that the only way you're going to get it in the statute is by embracing very broad readings of these very broad, like, criminal statutes, most of which date from like an era where just statutes were written differently. We had a different vision of criminal law, a lot of which haven't really been used that much, although this seditious conspiracy has. Like, it's just not good practice and is too close to genuine First Amendment activity. And we wouldn't want, I worry a lot about what a Republican administration does, or frankly, when you talk about like 14th Amendment and some of the arguments about what people are saying you can do around that, what Republican state legislatures and state governments might do, for example, kind of disqualify people who happen to be leaders of Black Lives Matters movements and other things who later run for public office, right? Like a lot of the same arguments that we see being trotted out um, by some people, I think somewhat recklessly against people involved with the President Trump supporters, I worry you're going to see a similar argument come back against Black Lives Matters organizers who I want to see a space in public government and public support. I mean, I think there's a whole generation of leaders there um, that you could see uh, at risk being targeted by some of this stuff by politically motivated people if we open the can for that sort of politically motivated use. And so personally, I support the more conservative approach, certainly with criminal perspectives. Frankly, I think that's true even of some of these other more unorthodox civil remedies um, that we're seeing crowded out as well, uh, such as the Madison Cawthorn is now who is being sued in North Carolina for um, for his ability to uh, hold office on allegations that you know his participation in January sixth disqualifies him. But uh, yeah, that doesn't mean that there's an accountability. There's absolutely should be. And frankly, impeachment was the main remedy that, even though it did not work out in this case, that clearly was intended to account for these sorts of circumstances. But there's still other avenues for accountability. I just don't think the criminal system is is necessarily the right one here uh, on the facts as we know them. I'm sympathetic to those arguments, but at the same time, I I think it is important not to discount. I mean, it's easy to say, well, I don't think they should do this, but I think there should be accountability. In what form? Like, he will not be rejected politically. That is not going to happen. So at this point... I, I I think I have developed over the last few years a lot more sympathy for the just throw all the spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks approach. But but one 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 thing that I do think is important to flag here is that we know from the Mueller report and from the Ukraine impeachment that Trump does not tend to act or speak in ways that make criminal prosecution super duper obvious. Um, And what I mean by that is that he is very good at finding the line and stopping just one hair short of it or putting his toe just over it. So, for example, with Comey, instead of saying, drop the investigation into Mike Flynn, he says, I hope you can see your way clear to letting this go. Right. I think we see the same thing on January 6th, where he doesn't say storm the Capitol, but he kind of says that wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And so I don't see a huge amount of hope in, you know, if you really wanted to bring a prosecution against him for for incitement or for seditious conspiracy or anything like all, it's just because he he tends not to communicate in ways that would make that easy. If you did really think that criminal accountability for Trump was important, what you could do is look at some of the potential obstruction charges set out in the Mueller report on which the statute of limitations is going to start running out soon. So if I were the Justice Department, frankly, that is what I would be looking at. Thank you for answering that. I, you know, I wanted to go back to what Quintus said really quick earlier, just that people were really frustrated that these, these bigger charges had not come through. And I did want to acknowledge just sort of 
the the emotions of the people here because January 6th was like really, really scary, especially if you lived in and around DC as I do. Like it was just a terrifying day. And when everybody left the Capitol and no one had been arrested yet, like I, I understand, especially with hindsight, like that's not how justice works. It's very deliberative. And I think what Alan and Scott said are, is great. And I, you know, I think justice should work like that, but it's also just so frustrating. And when you think about what Quinta said, like the Mueller report and everything else, and the political process is not going to get him. He's so different from what our institutions are set up to deal with and people have are taking apart those institutions as well so it's it's just very frustrating to know what to do or or to what to what to root for on the ground i mean i totally share that frustration and and i look i i think claudia and quinta are right that the political process is unlikely to hold him accountable so then the question is okay given that What's the right role of the criminal process? And look, Scott, I, I take your point that Justice Department has to act without political considerations. But I think we all know that that's not possible always because at the highest level of DOJ decision making and at the most politically salient prosecutorial decisions, law and politics bleeds together. And so, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, Merrick Garland, as much of a straight shooter as he wants to be and I think is, has to take the politics in consideration. And, and my concern is that, you know, I said earlier that the law is one way that we establish norms, but if the law overreaches, that can weaken the norm you're trying to establish. I mean, the, the thing that makes this a good prosecution in a kind of social sense is that, look, some people like the Oath Keepers, but the Oath Keepers are not, I think, all that popular. And you can bring a seditious conspiracy prosecution about the Oath Keepers. And, and I think give even many Trump supporters the ability to say, yeah, you know, the Oath Keepers, th- that's not good. That's seditious conspiracy. Okay, I'll, I'll buy that, right? And the problem is if you, if you bring a case that's not overwhelmingly solid, right, against someone like the president who remains very, very popular, then the question becomes, okay, how are the president supporters going to react to that? And look, I get that from like, a, well, we're criminal prosecutors. That's not our concern. Okay, sure, but since what we're since we're playing for big stakes, which is the future of constitutional democracy, I, I do worry that a prosecution like that could could backfire because a, you know millions and millions of people could think that their president and therefore their identity is being attacked by uh, democratic prosecutors for political criminal charges, and and I I have big worries about how that how that would end up. Yeah, I don't disagree with that, and I. If I did, maybe I misspoke. That's actually what I was trying to say, essentially, is is that I think there's reasons to tread lightly around these things. The one thing I do think it's worth bearing in mind, though, is that even if it seems like you would want a high threshold for eventual prosecution, that does not mean you don't investigate. And that's a big thing we need to bear in mind about a lot of the critiques of the Justice Department, frankly, a lot of the pushback of the Justice Department. The Justice Department should look at any case where there does look like there might be a basis of a credible basis for believing there might be criminal activity. And that's true of a lot of these cases. We're including around January 6th, where obviously there were connections around this, including the obstruction cases that Quinta noted um, that need a good look because there are facts there. And if those facts there are strong enough, then I think prosecution has to go forward, I think, regardless of the political calculus, because there's clear illegal behavior and political significance is not a basis for immunity in our criminal justice system. 
and certainly that is the case at the investigative phase as well. It's when you're around the charges where it's 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 on the borderline that I think you have to tread and be more conservative. But we'll have to see where this goes. This is a, a, a momentous step in this set of investigations around January 6th, but it's not going to be the last one. We're going to see more indictments against more people. Uh, Attorney General Garland made that very clear in his remarks the week prior to this indictment. And so we will have to see where this goes. And I'm sure we will have opportunity to revisit it here on Rational Security. So speaking of insurrection, conspiracy, criminal investigations, the the criminal justice system, there was a interesting news from Allen's old division of the Justice Department, the National Security Division, the other week. Matt Olson, who's the assistant attorney general for the division, announced that they're forming a domestic terrorism unit to, quote, augment our existing approach on domestic terrorism. And that the idea is to have a group of attorneys who are focusing specifically on this issue and coordinating in an era where I think the Olson said that the number of FBI investigations of suspected domestic violent extremists has more than doubled since the spring of 2020. So this seems like it is an increasingly hefty portion of what the FBI is looking at and what the Justice Department is looking at. So I think there are a lot of different ways we can take this conversation, including whether this is a a good idea. But just to start with, Alan, again, I'm going to turn to you as the person who actually served in this division. What does it mean to create a unit? And do you think that this will be effective? Yeah, sorry. I apologize to to the listeners for having to hear my voice so much on this particular episode. Someday we're going to have a State Department week and it's going to be all me, guys, and it's happening if I can persuade these people to give a shit. But we're not there yet. So DOJ it is. I don't know. Does the rest of the world really matter that much? Um, yeah. So, Quinta, to your question of, of what does it mean to create a unit, it, it's unclear, right? One of the nice things about DOJ is that, like, like every federal agency, it's plenty bureaucratic. But I think relative to other federal agencies, it's actually it's pretty thin on the bureaucracy, which is which is nice. So creating a unit could be something as simple as, you know, the head of the National Security Division calling the head of the Counterterrorism Division and saying, hey, can we just have something called a unit so that we have like 10 people who, you know, we can turn to and maybe they, they meet once a week and then they brief me once a month for an hour, right? All the way up to creating a whole specialized sub office within the National Security Division that has rules and hiring and all sorts of stuff. And, and I suspect it's closer to the former than the latter, which again is is fine. You know, at the end of the day, it's more important, frankly, what they do than what they're called. But I do think this is an appropriate evolution of NSD's internal structure, right? The the government and the Department of Justice and the National Security Division has to evolve as the threat evolves. And the National Security Division was created in the wake of 9-11, in the wake of the wars in you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, in the wake of the development of various surveillance technologies and techniques of the U.S. government. And so it made sense that for the first uh, 15 years or so of its existence, those are the things that it focused on, intelligence and foreign foreign terrorism. But foreign terrorism was not the only terrorism we've had to deal with. In the 90s, obviously, we had domestic terrorism with the Oklahoma City bombings. And in the last several years, as the foreign terrorist threat seems to have really receded, and domestic extremism, domestic terrorism, domestic, uh, you know, far, far right, and, you know, maybe there's some far left violence as well. Presumably, they'll cover that too, as it as it comes up. I mean, obviously, it's not going to be a right-wing domestic terrorism unit. It's going to be a domestic terrorism unit, you know, whatever they whatever they find. Qu- Quinta gave me a very skeptical look. Got to watch out for that Antifa. 
can't yeah, trust them. I, you can't trust them. I, I, I have to, this is, this is a, this is a total sidebar, but I actually have no idea why people on the left think that a requirement of attacking far right extremism is also like saying nice things or saying kind of um, nice things about Antifa. Like they can both be bad at the same time. I mean, I would say I don't understand why a requirement of attacking far right extremism is that you have to both sides things, but go on. What, what do you mean? Be, 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 oh. Because, because attacking far right extremism guys, naturally raises guys. very sensitive issues of, um, you know, political, fight, pers- fight, pro- fight, well, fight. political prosecution. And you have to, I think uh, uh, you have to, Make sure that everyone understands that you're willing to follow the extremism wherever it leads, whatever. Wow, we have really gotten far off the off the the course here. As you were saying, Alan. As, I, as I was saying, this is good. It may not be a huge deal. What really is going to matter is whether or not more investigations are done and more prosecutions are done. I suspect they will be. And if NSD wants to update its internal bureaucratic structure to reflect that, that is great. And Quinta, I will meet you in the in the at the playground behind the schoolyard <laughs> after, after after recess. Come bring your posse. I'll bring my posse. <laughs> this is like a whole, whole weird microcosm of, of the whole far left, far right thing <laughs> coming together, guys. I just, I, just love, right. I just love Scott in the background going, guys, guys. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm over here like, all right, guys, tweeted us hashtag Team Quinta or hashtag Team Alan. <laughs> Not this one. We're not going to do that for this one. For the Antifa. Yeah, yeah. Are, are you pro Antifa or anti Antifa? Yeah. Yeah. This is just going to get us Twitter banned. Um, as, as general counsel, please know. <laughs> um, what I what I will say is this. I think it's an interesting signal of this like question we've been having for kind of the last, really the last like 20 or 30 years, but particularly the last few years, which is like, do we need a federal criminal statute specifically regarded to domestic terrorism, right? And it's kind of like a, it's this question where a lot of people say, well, we want to see a parallel with international terrorism, where we've had this rapid proliferation of criminal statutes, actually even before 9-11, but then after 9-11, just exponentially broader, right? And like more aggressive, more authority to pursue international terrorism. Domestically, like they all require an extraterritorial nexus. So if it's strict domestic terrorism without that international nexus, you, you can't use those statutes. And there really isn't a direct parallel. Now we have all these federal crimes that apply to things like bombing federal buildings or attacking federal officials or uh, doing a lot of the things that like domestic terrorists like to do. Or seditious conspiracy, for example. Or seditious conspiracy. Exactly. It being being another example of this that's like been trotted out in the past against other groups, both international terrorists and kind of domestic terrorist groups as well. Um, although mostly international terrorists for like the last in the post 9-11 era, I think. Um, I could be wrong about that. What I think is interesting is that you know, a lot of the arguments for those reforms are actually much more about driving DOJ internal policy and FBI internal policy, which is the idea that, oh, we want to give DOJ a hook so that they think this is really important and they feel like they can take this sort of step. And it'll be interesting to see, like this certainly suggests at least that the current Justice Department doesn't feel that's absolutely necessary to take this step, right? There is no new federal statute for domestic terrorism. Presumably, they're going to step in and they're going to prosecute the same nexus of statutes that have always been used against these groups, which is things about violence targeting the federal government or interstate commerce, right? Uh, hate crimes has always been a big part of this for a lot of these right-wing groups, particularly because there's often an overlay with racial violence uh, and animus. Uh, and so like the FBI, actually, their domestic terrorism task force is actually a hate crime slash domestic terrorism task force because there's so much overlap about that, or at least was for a long time. I don't know if that's current. And then these new, not new, these actually very old statutes, but they're kind of like the new sedition statutes is like, well, how what are we, what are we doing in this space? How do we roll these out? 
and so, you know, it's a good test of this theory. Like, now, will these changes survive a change in administration? Who knows? Like, I kind of suspect it's going to be harder to uproot, right? Because, like, nobody really likes – can come out and say, oh, no, we like domestic terrorism. It's okay. Or there's no legitimate concerns over domestic terrorism. Maybe it gets underfunded. Maybe what happens to it is the same thing that happens to the Civil Rights Division of DOJ during certain administrations where their priorities shift. They focus on a more narrower set of crimes that are, don't have the same political valence. They may not take on certain targets, um, you know, that, like, people just occupying Federal Wildlife Service offices no longer fall in their ambit. Whereas they might have under a democratic administration who sees that as a more, you know, violent activity. It, it'll be an interesting experiment in that regard. Uh, maybe if they actually did have that statutory hook that where the DOJ had an obligation to prosecute this stuff more, they would have more staying power. I don't know. But certainly at this point, at least, it does seem to suggest that there's a lot DOJ can do internally in its own organization and prioritization. And it's good to see them taking those steps. That I think a lot of people say it'd be long overdue. Yeah, j- just to quickly just to quickly respond, I mean, I, I think seditious conspiracy is, in fact, the right statute here. I think the problem is you just need to amend it or have a, a consensus narrowing construction on it, right? The, the problem with it, I think, I think it gets at what we mean when we talk about domestic terrorism, right? Or at least kind of the far right anti-government terrorism, which is use of force to attack the government as the government, right? And I think the problem here is that the what the statute allows for is you know, use of force to attack the government when it's executing any law, like any law, right? I mean, so that's the problem. And so if we could somehow narrow the seditious conspiracy statute, that would actually be a really good, hopefully rarely used, but properly used domestic terrorism uh, statute. Now, good, good luck doing that in this Congress. Yeah. So there's a few things that I want to bring in here, especially as the digital media director. I do think that there's going to be more public violence in the future. I mean, I hope there won't be, but I do think that there will be or or we'll continue to see the trend that we're seeing and it might perhaps grow bigger. Uh, There's a few reasons for that. Uh, There was a really interesting article I read by Adam Kotzko arguing that the assassinations, like school shootings and mass shooting events are the new assassinations because there used to be you know, quite a lot more assassinations if you think about it, McKinley, Lincoln, of course, but like Lincoln was the biggest assassination during that time of, of there was more in the 1860s and, and during that period and also during the 20th century. And so when you think of, of all of the turmoil in our society from the past 20 years, like since 9-11, like, you know, sort of where are all the all the assassinations? And he gives a few reasons for that, which I think are pretty interesting. Uh, but to boil it down, he thinks that mass shooting events are are the new sort of public violence for the the lone man, and it is usually a man to to lash out and hurt other people and uh, to attack the general public. So I think we're going to see that trend continue. And the other thing that I want to bring up, and this is especially internet based, the newsletter Garbage Day by Ryan Broderick uh, really goes into what the metaverse is going to look like. And so for people who don't know, the metaverse is a perceived future where the internet and real life become more entwined. That is to say, there's there's a lot of people right now for whom real life is the internet, of course. But I don't I don't think the metaverse, and Ryan Broderick doesn't think either, that the metaverse is going to be what Facebook thinks it's going to be. There's this quote that he has that going outside is the future of going online. And I'd love to hear Quint's perspective on this, thinking as, as she does about platforms and social media in her Arbiters of Truth segment for the Lawfare podcast on Thursdays which is that we've already seen this a bit where things that are online and we're all especially online now because of the pandemic 
the online is spilling into real life. I think that January 6th is an outcropping of what was happening online. And when you think about other sort of situations, which people might not know about, but Adrian's kickback or the Josh Swain fight, like these are things that were online and then showed up in real life and and there was turmoil and, and, and chaos. And so, you know, I think as we become more online and, and we move towards a metaverse future, we're going to see uh, more violence, especially from 4chan's little defunct, but but from that space. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I think it is interesting how if if you look back at public discourse about the internet and the far right since maybe 2016, which I've been doing recently for a project, anxiety over the far right around the Trump campaign really starts with anxiety over the internet um, and people sort of discovering, you know, the fetid corners of online spaces. And I actually feel like one of the things that has happened over the last four years is that that anxiety has persisted, but it also feels like it's moved into the physical space as well. And, you know, that the Oath Keepers are not just a bunch of people who communicate using Signal, but are a militia who, you know, muster and train together and all that kind of thing. So I I do think the two spaces are knit together. And I want to follow up on that point very quickly is that, you know, militias are... (laughs) By their very nature, they're sort of not connected. But during the pandemic, they've become more connected than ever. Well, I had a thought. Uh, now I can't remember what it is because it completely flittered out of my brain. But fortunately, we are out of time anyway. So we will wrap up with that topic there. But of course, this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to consider as you go about your week until our next episode. Alan, why don't I hand it over to you? Because that is the theme of today's episode to get things started. <laughs> don't worry. I'll just be quiet for like the next couple of weeks. You guys, you know, you know I'll have to hear me much. Um, it's because you were gone a week. So now we had to like get our fill. We have to up yeah. our ratio. Up. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that's what everyone wants. More Alan. So my object lesson is a printer. Not any printer. This printer is a special printer because it is located in the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Uh, one of the lesser known intelligence uh, agencies, this is the one that does spy satellites. And um, according to a wonderful Inspector General report that was unearthed by uh, Jason Leopold of uh, BuzzFeed, uh, and we'll link to his tweet where he, uh, he breaks this story. Apparently, someone complained to the NGAIG that an employee used one of the printers to print over 100 copies of their wedding program, right? In clear violation of... I assume federal bureaucracy rules. And not just that, the IG investigated it. Uh, not entirely sure what the outcome of that investigation is, but that is your tax dollars at work. So uh, what's the moral of the story? I don't know. Buy a printer, I guess. You should have a printer, even if you're a millennial or a Printers Gen Zer. Printers suck, though. I do have a printer. It's called the work printer. Yeah. <laughs> So I do have a printer. I have my own printer and it sucks. It is constantly broken. There's a very interesting, I think, New Yorker article about the physics of printers, which I recommend to everyone. It is utterly fascinating and explains why printers are constantly breaking because apparently the physics of printers is extremely complicated, but I prefer a printer that I'm not responsible for fixing. So I'm with Claudia here. You're suggesting that the printers in the Brookings Institution have ever been fixed, which in my four (laughs) years there has never been the case. Uh, But fair fair try. Uh, Claudia, you'll learn soon enough that that work printer may not be as reliable as you think. (laughs) For listeners, I was hired during the pandemic, so I've never seen the office. I assume that I have a corner office with a good view. I don't know. We don't even know that Claudia exists in 3D. 
There are corners. <laughs> this is a very so. elaborate um, Jim Henson puppet, actually. There's a guy sort of beneath the view. That's very on theme. It sounds like one of my object lessons. That's good. <laughs> I like it. Quinta, why, why don't you take us up to our next object lesson? I, I wish I had a Muppet-themed object lesson to continue the theme, but alas. That could be the one thing that makes it worse. Yeah, <laughs> that's excellent point. Uh, my object lesson is a bad tweet, is a tweet from everyone's favorite Twitter account at FBI, the official Twitter account of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And it is a tweet on the occasion of Martin Luther King Day. It includes a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, It says this hashtag MLK Day 2022 and every day the hashtag FBI remains dedicated to service and committed to protecting our communities. Now, you might wonder, why is the FBI... The federal agency that famously uh, illegally surveilled Dr. King and suggested he should commit suicide tweeting about him on Martin Luther King Day. Well, folks, I'm pretty sure the answer is that I don't know, but that the Bureau is since since the Comey years has really been undergoing a push to diversify the uh, employees, really trying to get more Black and Latino uh, agents and analysts in the Bureau. I'm sure somebody thought this was a good idea for that reason. However, I would like to suggest that there are some times when maybe you should just sit things out. And I think for the FBI, MLK Day is one of them. What is what, in your opinion, is cringier, the quote unquote woke CIA recruitment video or the FBI tweeting about MLK Day? Oh, man. It's right. That's a hard choice. That's a really hard one. Yeah. What if the FBI like on MLK Day actually like tweeted a uh, sincere effort to wrestle with this complicated uh, history? I actually would fully support that. That'd be great. Nobody would be hard on Twitter. Yeah. I will say Jim Comey for. All of his that's what I was uh, say. all of his flaws, yeah. yes, has spoken at length and in depth about how important the legacy of Pro and the FBI's harassment of Dr. King was to him and how he kept the uh, surveillance application drafted by Hoover and signed by Bobby Kennedy on his desk as a reminder that this kinds of surveillance should not be taken lightly. So he really did take this seriously. I don't know if the tweet communicates that. I was thinking of that exact thing because it is such a powerful description that he gave. I think it is book. Yeah, he's it's in his book. He's talked he talks about it in in a number of speeches, but yeah, it's I'm it's in um what's called higher loyalty. Yeah. Listen, as somebody who does social for a brand, there's just I don't think there's anything. If they didn't tweet, it it might be a story as well. I mean, not that I agree with what they tweeted, but it's just, and if you go back to this CIA video that you were talking about, like I, nobody was happy about it. People on the left thought they were trying too hard and people on the right hated that they were trying at all. Like there's just no way to win, especially as a government agency. All I can say, Claudia, is I'm glad that you are our digital media strategy director and not me. I will say there's one federal agency that used social media super well, and it's the National Park Service on Instagram, which is actually like one of five Instagram accounts I follow because I'm not an Instagram person, because every day is just 30 pictures of beautiful landscapes and amazing animals, and it's the perfect use. Also, the Consumer Safety Protection Bureau, amazing Twitter feed, true data humor. It's great. Check it out. You heard it here first. Uh, The the North Korean government's Twitter feed, very, very funny. (laughs) 
Boring governments don't count. Our own Twitters. By the way, there's a rational security Twitter, a lawfare Twitter, and everyone here has a Twitter except for me. We're not wrapping up yet, Claudia. We're getting there. Wait for it. Wait for it. We get to that in the wrap up. Always be plugging. Well, for my object lesson, I I am plugging, uh, but not something we produce. Uh, I had the pleasure this weekend, foo, for the first time in a while, sit down with my wife uh, and watch some relaxing adult television. That sounds inappropriate. Just regular television, but not not children, (laughs) not the Muppets or cartoons. Please keep talking. Please keep explaining. That's how I meant. Oh, yes. On Saturday night, we uh, decided to check out a new TV show that I have to admit she learned about from the OG Three people talking about three topics every week podcast, the political gap fest from David Platts, who shared it with his cocktail chatter was so good. I had to relay it, uh, which is a show called We Are Lady Parts, uh, which is originally a BBC show now up on Peacock. That is an amazing comedy. It's just like six episodes that are out right now. They just got renewed for a second season about a female Muslim punk band in, I think, East London. And it is just phenomenal, like really charming. It's like actually like very heartwarming coming of age-ish. I mean, it's all about like women in their mid-20s, so not quite coming of age, but kind of like wrestling with the challenges of life in that phase. Also from like the very unique perspective of all being Muslim women and like a really, really diverse representation of like different Muslim experiences in the UK, which has like a very unique British Muslim cultural context of like post-imperialism and, you know, being in East London. It is just absolutely phenomenal. And then like the best part of it, of all of it, is that the showrunner, and I believe it was her sister and friends of theirs, actually wrote all original music, like a whole album of basically Sex Pistols E kind of like sneery punk. It's not quite punk. It's really like punk slash like rockier British pop sort of music, but really, really entertaining, worth listening to. That's like both very funny and clever. And then also actually like very kind of insightful and reflective uh, and digs into like complicated social issues that particularly like British Muslims and British Muslim women are face, I think. So like the representative uh, song that I think is has a great guitar riff and is generally a banger uh, is called Voldemort is under my headscarf, I think, uh, and uses both like brings in both like Harry Potter symbolism. So it's very kind of, uh, you know, post millennially, millennially talking about that and like phobia around Muslims and like, you know, headscarf and then bringing in Voldemort. And then like, it's just a phenomenal song. It's great to listen to. Uh, you can actually download their album separately. So I ended up signing up for Peacock entirely to watch this show. And I don't regret it, even though I finished it all in one sitting uh, in the evening on Saturday. I highly recommend people check it out and get it for the second season. And I will say, if you do end up paying for Peacock as well, I also watched the first episode of Girls 5 Eva, which was a very, very funny show as well. So I'll throw in an endorsement for that too. But um, definitely check out We Are Lady Parts. It's phenomenal uh, and a great watch and a great listen. Um, and I'll put, try and throw some links to uh, some of their YouTube song, their songs that are up on YouTube in these show notes. Claudia, why don't you take us home? So first, I want to correct myself from earlier. The train stuff in the CFR is 49, not 39. I hope the people at the FRA will still talk to me after this Thank error. God, you did it, because I was really going to be embarrassed to have to correct you on that one. Oh, Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so for my object lesson, I want everyone who's listening to turn the lights down low and put on some nice music and get some wine because this is the best thing that I've ever heard. So the FDI just decided to deregulate salad dressing. And this is my, this is my object of salad dressing. It's the French salad dressing. Did you say the FBI decided to deregulate? The FDA. (laughs) It'd be awesome. I think you said FBI, which would be awesome. And they tweeted about it on Martin Luther King Day, weirdly. The whole thing is very strange. What are they thinking? (laughs) 
Okay, but so they had since 1950 a definition for French dressing, for French salad dressing, sort of like how it's not champagne unless it's from a Champagnon region of France, etc. In 1998, the Association for Dressings and Condiments, which is a trade association, if there's anybody who listens to us who is part of that trade association, I would love to talk to you so much. Oh my God. In 1998, they asked the FDA, like, hey, this is weird. We would love to innovate French dressing. You don't have this for other dressings. We hate this. And it took them 24 years. And this year, they finally said, okay, you can do whatever you want for French dressing. Like, I love this so much. Like, I'm a bureaucrat. And I remember, like, we had petitions that lasted for five years, and those were a mess. Like, I'm a recondo. I love mess. And I just, I just, I really want to be in those meetings. I want to know who had the content management system that had to track this petition for 24 years. I'm going to cry. I love it so much. You have missed a calling in trade law because if you love arbitrarily categorizing things uh, and the processes by which you would arrive at those terrible categorizations, trade law is for you. Uh, so you've missed your calling, Claudia. I, feel. I just, I love paperwork. I will also say, I genuinely want to know how much the weird moment after 9-11, actually more after the Iraq invasion, uh, when like France refused to support us and we stopped calling things French. And so we called them freedom fries. It's actually like intersected with this. Like I wouldn't free. Freedom dressing. dressing. Yeah, freedom Freedom dressing. Exactly. Like derailed this for an easy decade or two. Uh, That calls for an investigative piece. So somebody better be on this. Hopefully it's you, Claudia. Oh, my God. Right. When they made this definition in 1950, I mean, when you think about Julia Child's uh, her stuff, like she's like, this isn't even French dressing. The French would never eat this. And so it's just there's so many different angles. I need like uh, Jamie Loftus to do a a series on this. It would be amazing. (laughs) I love it. Well, soon, hopefully, maybe another Lawfare uh, report special uh, special series here coming forward on the French dressing scandal, um, perhaps. But uh, until we arrive there, that, for better or for worse, brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebear, a production of Lawfare. You can still find our show page at lawfareblog.com, where you will find liner notes for this episode, including links to the articles and object lessons we've discussed. You can also purchase Rational Security swag at thelawfarestore.com or go to patreon.com slash lawfare to become a material supporter of Lawfare for ad-free podcast feeds and other special benefits, including a committed ad-free feed for this podcast, which people who use have Claudia Swain to thank for fixing for us. So thank you, Claudia for bringing that uh, back from the dead uh, and correcting us on our oversight on that earlier. Please do follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. And wherever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review or hit that share button and pass it along to your loved ones. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. And our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Patcha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Claudia Swain, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.